core stories, ordinary marines, extraordinary lives. Hey everybody, thank you so much for joining us for Core Stories Innovators. And today we get to meet Erin Rice, who is doing extraordinary and innovative things with respect to constitutional law. And he's kind of captured the attention of lawyers around the country. Anyway, relax, enjoy it, and I'll catch you on the back side. It's so good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. Golly, we have a lot to catch up on. I know. It's been a long time. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's been since San Antonio, I guess. Since San Antonio, since I've seen your face live. But yeah, I guess with social media, it makes it feel like it hasn't been quite as long ago. I know it. I know it because I keep up with your family. Mm -hmm. And one beautiful child after another arriving. Also. Yeah, <laughs> they keep coming. I love it. I love it. Let's see, a little catch up. So the last time I think we talked was when we were trying to get an award increase for uh, somebody from MAP7. Map and I think that that got a, after our part, it became a little bureaucratic and I kind of was kind of out of the mix after that. Yeah. But I learned something about you then. And that was what an advocate you are. And I think that when we met, when we first met in San Antonio, you were still an undergraduate. I was. Right? So yeah, I was. So take me through the chronology since then. Like yeah. when you graduated, law school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So when we met in San Antonio at the reunion for MAP7, I was still an undergrad. I had, I had gone on my deployment during undergrad. I'd actually joined the Marine Corps and deployed while I was at Mississippi State University. So I joined a reserve unit. And so I had done my freshman year of college and then I went to boot camp. Then I came home and during my first semester back at Mississippi State is when my unit got called up and, and we started gearing up for our deployment. And so I deployed to Iraq with basically three semesters of college under my belt. And so, yeah, when, after the San Antonio reunion, I came home just basically finished up undergrad, went straight from undergrad to Ole Miss Law School, which had been a plan all along, or at least something I'd been considering all along was law school. And from there, left law school. When I, during law school, I was very interested in constitutional law. I actually, that's where I first became interested in constitutional law, was in law school. And I considered at the time joining some kind of national public interest law firm that did constitutional law and, and was really thinking about that very heavily. But by the time I got out of law school, Kelly and I had had our first child and we definitely wanted to stay in Mississippi and put down roots. And there weren't any constitutional litigation centers in Mississippi that really did what I was interested in doing. And so as life would have it, and I'm very glad that it did work out this way. I, I stayed in Mississippi, I went into private practice with two different large defense law firms for about eight years. And so with one of them, I, I did a lot of insurance defense litigation. And with another, I focused on uh, representing pharmaceutical companies and mass tort litigation. So I've done that for quite some time. And then while I was doing that, a, a uh, group, the Mississippi Justice Institute, who I'm with now, they got started in 2016. And so I was really excited to see that group get started. It was a group that did the kind of things I had always been interested in. And so I was at the time interested in supporting them and kind of 
cheering them on and hoping that they were able to do good things. And again, as life would have it, within about two years of the Mississippi Justice Institute getting started, they were looking for a new director. My name came up and I interviewed for the job and, and uh, wound up being asked to come head it up. And so was very glad to take that opportunity and come over here. So it grew very quickly. It sounds to me like in three years, maybe yeah, that organization grew. Yes, it has grown very quickly, and, and it depends on what you mean by by growth. Because staff-wise, we're we're still fairly small, but in terms of our impact, we've grown a lot. And when I say fairly small, it's it's me. I'm a one-man band right now, and I recruit attorneys in the private sector to help me with all of my cases. And so that's kind of our go-to-business model right now. We we are planning on on growing this next year and hiring a second staff attorney. But yeah, it has, the impact has grown and it's been uh, really neat to be a part of that. So the, the group got started in 2016, like I said, and, and the director at the time really had to focus on getting the organization together, getting the funding together for it, kind of selling the, the idea. And, and as I've mentioned, I mean, this was the first group like this in the state of Mississippi. And, and really there's not many groups like this around the nation. And so it's kind of a new concept to people. And so the, our original director spent a lot of time getting the organization put together and getting just the funding and the group off the ground. And so when I came in, we had the concept and we had some of the funding we needed, but we really had not had a chance to prove the concept yet. And so it's been you know really great to, to be a part of that and actually bringing these lawsuits and winning several of them and being able to kind of show people in Mississippi and our supporters what what this was that we were trying to do and now people really understand it a lot better people are getting excited about it and our our, our donations are increasing our volunteer attorneys are increasing so i do feel like we are on a path to growth and success yeah so tell me tell me what is the hypothesis what is yeah. the, what is the theory that you've been testing so successfully yeah so it's we're a, a constitutional litigation center a public interest one and what that means is that we represent clients for free when their constitutional rights have been violated. So we have to raise money to do that and then have an on-staff attorney such as myself to partner with somebody in the private sector. And really the, the hypothesis, so to speak, like you mentioned, is really just the focus that we have. And so we've got a focus that you don't ne you know, necessarily see in, in every other constitutional litigation center that might exist out there, like the ACLU or Southern Poverty Law Center or some group like that. So we're focused on economic liberty, and we, we've litigated cases in all of these areas, and, and we will take cases in other areas as well, but, but we really have a preference for economic liberty, so that's what we call the right to earn a living without unnecessary government intervention, free speech, property rights issues, school choice issues, we've litigated that as well, gun rights issues in Mississippi, that's something that's very important to Mississippians, Certainly. and religious liberty, <clears throat> excuse me, religious liberty cases as well, and so... It's, it's really just the focus is what's different, but you don't see that focus a lot, you know, in public interest litigation. So it's really an innovative way to address the law. In other words, these are not kinds of cases that are unfamiliar to the public. They're just yeah. being handled from a constitutionality angle. Is that yes. what I'm understanding? That's right. That's right. And ultimately the, the goal for a group like us for a constitutional litigation center such as ourselves is to to move the uh the precedent in the courts in a direction that in our in our conception is a favorable direction so in Certainly. other words 
in other words, expanding the protections that are afforded under the Constitution, and this would be under the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution, and then every state constitution has parallels to this, but for example, expanding the protection under that provision for the right to work. And so what that means when the Constitution says you have a due process right to liberty, and we want to gain precedence in the court, in the courts in Mississippi that recognize that right and recognize it as a strong right so that the government, and this is what it really all comes down to, Meriwether, is that, and this is why I was attracted to this opportunity, is that America, as we both agree, is a great country, and a big reason for our greatness is that our founders recognized the need to limit our government so that the innovation of Americans and their entrepreneurial spirit and all of that could be unleashed. And they did that primarily with our Constitution, which did several things, one of which was to divide power between the branches and to limit the government that way. But they also limited the government with the Bill of Rights and several other provisions of the Constitution. And the whole, really one of the main purposes there is to allow Americans to be their best. And in some respects, we get away from that sometimes. And our government does intervene more than it should, more than our founders might have conceptualized what the government should be doing. And so what we're trying to do is to assert those rights, to be an advocate, especially when you're talking about the Constitution, that only gets enforced through the courts. And it's expensive to hire a lawyer to enforce the Constitution. And so it doesn't always go enforced. And so if you're talking about the rights of a large business or other special interest groups out there, they've got lobbyists, they've got high-powered lawyers, and they're going to be just fine. They're going to make sure that the government does what they want them to do, the legislative branches, the political branches, or even the courts. But when you're talking about the rights of the people, the things that are just in the Constitution that we all appreciate, those don't always go enforced. Because again, you need an advocate that will go into the courts for something that may not be worth any money. One of these cases may not involve damages, may not involve the ability for an attorney to really make money on the case. And so you need a group like ours who is willing to not be incentivized by the profit necessarily, but more in defending the Constitution. And so that's what we're trying to do. And we're really trying to move the precedents in the courts in a better direction than we feel like they've been going for the last 90 plus years. Well, so there's a couple of things that I wanted to unpack. Yeah. One was I followed a case that your office took on for a young woman who had a little hustle, a side business, not a big organization with many employees, but just a small, tiny, fairly earning eyebrow grooming business. And she was a student or some that age group, and she was a woman of color. And I remember thinking, there is no way she would find an attorney if it weren't, you know, to support her with this. It seemed like some ridiculous mandates the state laid down on her version of eyebrow grooming. Yeah. So it, it really illuminated for me. Wait a minute. What? <laughs> so I had no idea. I had no idea there were those kinds of restrictions invented to impact a tiny little business. You're exactly right about that. That case, our client is Deepa Batara. She's, she's just a, a great person. And I was just on the phone with her the other day talking about her case, but 
But just to kind of give a background on what the facts of her case are for your viewers, she, Deepa, grew up in Nepal where she was very familiar with uh, a form of eyebrow grooming or other facial hair grooming called eyebrow threading. It's, it's an ancient technique over there, and it really just involves using two strands of cotton thread that you kind of loop around your fingers and form a cross with the thread, and you manipulate your fingers in such a way that the knot moves and just pulls hair out. It's very, very simple, very safe. You don't even touch the customer when you do this. But it's actually gotten very popular in the United States. People prefer it to waxing and tweezing and other things like that. And so Deepa saw an opportunity there because nobody else was doing this in Mississippi and she was doing it for some of her friends and it really called on while she was in school and she she's very entrepreneurial and she saw an opportunity to, to go out and start a business and she did that and, and was doing very, very well with the business. Within you know a year, she had hired four employees and opened a second location and she was doing all this while she was a full-time student on a scholarship as well and, and a, a resident assistant for her dorm. So again, just a very hard worker, entrepreneurial person. And so, but what she didn't know is that in Mississippi and in some other states, and this is, this is something that we see very commonly, it's not limited to Deepa's case, is that we have a lot of regulations here that tell you what you can and can't do when you run any kind of business. And, and a lot of times those, those regulations and those laws are not necessarily designed, they might be couched in, the, in terms of kind of protecting the public health or, or public safety. But the real story is that groups, special interest groups, I could say, have, have learned over time that by increasing barriers to work, that it will benefit them. And so groups will get together and ask the government to increase the requirements to the educational requirements or licensing requirements to get into various professions. And they'll do that to a point where it gets absurd. You're talking about, for example, in Deepa's case, this is something that is completely safe. Uh, it's existed for centuries in Nepal. She's been doing it her entire life you can teach somebody how to do this technique in about five or 10 minutes. Now they can get better at it over time, but we're not talking about rocket science here. And that's all she wants to do is eyebrow threading. She doesn't want to cut people's hair. She doesn't want to shave people's faces with a straight razor or anything like that. That's all she wants to do. And in order to do that job, she would have to spend about 10 to $15,000 going to beauty school and spend 600 hours in training at beauty school. And, and the kicker is, that not one minute of that beauty school training will teach her anything about eyebrow threading because our regulations don't cover eyebrow threading in Mississippi. They don't teach eyebrow threading. The curriculum doesn't teach eyebrow threading. So despite the fact that that's all she wants to do, she can't actually go out and do it unless she spends 600 hours of her life and 10 to $15,000 to get a relevant training. So that's a point in, in our conception when the government has exceeded its constitutional authority to regulate for public health and safety. They've gone so far in that case, it's so absurd that it violates the constitution. And so, but there are lots of examples of that. This is again, not limited to DEPA. So how did she find you? She, she was, she, you mentioned earlier that I was an advocate. She is also an advocate for herself. And it was very interesting. She felt, even though she was somewhat new to America, she felt the injustice of this when she was shut down and didn't feel like this was the America that she had grown up learning about. And surely this could not be the case. And so she went to the Board of Cosmetology in Mississippi on her own 
and kind of had to figure out how to do that, how to get on a docket at a, at a government meeting and how to show up and all of that and came and kind of pled her case to the Board of Cosmetology, trying to get them to deregulate this practice. And and she was not successful there, but she learned in conversation with others there that really, if you're gonna do anything, and especially in the state of Mississippi, sometimes you've got to bring a lawsuit. And so she researched on the internet, did things like that. At the same time, one of the roles I fill as the director of the Mississippi Justice Institute is try to try to get the word out about what we do. And so sure. I'm here on radio and TV and things like that. And so while she was looking for an attorney to take our case on, she also happened across some of my uh, content that was out there. And she really just reached directly out and, and asked if we would be interested in helping her. And of course, we were very interested in helping her. And that's why we, we filed that case. Now, I have to kind of, from knowing you, um, and knowing the timeline so well, I have to wonder if the timing of your service, although you were not in theater long because of your catastrophic injury, if your service overlapping your higher undergraduate education, but more your postgraduate Juris Doctor plan influenced your experience of seeing people in the Middle East, seeing people who live in other cultures that are so very different in governmental structure than our country, if that influenced you at all, your Marine Corps service. Yeah, well, I think it did in a lot of ways. So for one thing, it really just kind of cemented for me, I joined the Marine Corps because I felt like my country needed me. And it was September 11th happened my senior year of high school and that's you know when i went out and went to the recruiting station and so having that opportunity and serving alongside the great guys that i was able to do very well in map seven um seeing the sacrifice that many of them made and, and many of them making the ultimate sacrifice i think that just for one thing just cemented in me a desire to find other ways to serve my country as well once our deployment was over and and it, it also did, like you mentioned, it exposed me to just a wide array of people, whether it was people here in America who weren't from Mississippi and were from New York or San Antonio or wherever, I think was just a good growing opportunity for me as a young man at the time. And then it did, like you said, being in Iraq, I think did also help me appreciate even more than I did at the time, how great our country was and why it was so great and the things that we had that didn't necessarily exist everywhere around the world. And the, just like we started early in this conversation about the limits on government power that we have here, whereas in Iraq, there was more of a, a dictatorship. And then, and then, of course, that led to ultimately people like me being there and then an insurgency and a, and a vacuum and anarchy. And so just seeing how not everyone in the world lives with the, the, the blessings that we have, the rights we have, the system of government that we have that that in, in my view is is a just a genius design and that and that it's not guaranteed that if people like you and I today don't appreciate it and aren't picking up the mantle to defend it and continuing on the tradition that it's not necessarily guaranteed to last and to stay this way. And so yeah, that's a long answer, but there's a lot of different ways I think that yes, my military service and going to Iraq and deploying with MAP-7, I think did in a lot of ways uh, create a lot of other interest for me. 
So just to be specific, you were with 3rd Battalion, 25th Marines, 4th Marine yeah. Division, um, yeah. and but your particular platoon was MAP, MAP 7. And so it also makes me think about not only is the approach to resolving these constitutional issues, in so many ways, almost every, every law can quickly harken back to the Constitution. And in so many ways, many lower court rulings are, are inconsistent with that. Yeah. But I love that you just are calling it what it is rather than getting stuck in the mire. When you describe that it was not actually politicians regulation that mm -hmm. interfered with your client from Nepal. It was the business groups or lobbying groups of some kind who yeah. had invented so much regulation. Yeah. And and that is news to me that I hadn't yeah. even considered that. So you're revealing that. Now the other thing that I find interesting in talking to you today is I'm realizing that it's actually social media and perhaps the internet that connected you to her. And I wonder how well the um, age of technology is promoting what you do and yeah. furthering. It is. And what, so one of the, one of the things that has helped us a lot is that we have gotten, you mentioned earlier, kind of the growth and the, the just advancement and the recognition of our group. And that has been uh, phenomenal. One of the great successes that I'm proud of to see from our group is that we do have kind of a definitely a statewide recognition at this point, and we're even breaking into kind of a, a national recognition as well. And and for some of the work we've done, and some of the media coverage that you may have seen from some of the work we've done, and so I think of us as a state-based constitutional litigation center that has kind of a national reach at times. But so the tradi traditional media outlets have have kind of I think cemented uh, our our recognition within the state and so there are a lot of people who know of us from that and so will recommend us to others mainly because they read about our cases in the in the newspaper or see us on the local news or things like that and so that's been great but you're right that with social media and that's getting that is actually getting harder and harder to do these days you may you know be familiar with that but the, you have to pay to do it and the reach is limited sometimes but it does it can also go kind of viral in some senses and so if, if a story really connects or a case really connects with the public, then it can spread through social media as people share the story. And that's what I have found is that a lot of times the cases we take on really do connect with your, your everyday person and they get shared a lot. And so even outside of traditional media, which as you probably know too, has, has just is kind of on the decline these days, it's we've still been able to, to get kind of have both, have the recognition within traditional media that, that gets us some kind of word of mouth referrals, but also just content that is widely shared on social media and that potential clients will sometimes just stumble upon on their own and contact us directly. So we've had, we've seen both and it's been, it's been you know, really encouraging. So that brings me to where you would like to go from here. So yeah. it's a nonprofit organization. Yeah, that's right. But in my experience, having this nonprofit publication yeah. for so long, there are a lot of governmental restrictions to growth for nonprofits. Yeah. Yeah. And 
right now, I, I'm sure you're aware that I'm studying over at the London School of Economics, trying to figure out in a postgraduate program, isn't there some way to do both? Isn't there no. some way that a lean organization can grow without yeah. a lot of governmental restriction? Um, so not to go down that rabbit hole here, yeah. but when I think about your organization growing, becoming more, not only exposed to other other states, but their interests. What about sort of mirroring or copying your program in their state? Yeah. And, and so I wonder about what is the plan? How, yeah. yeah, so you're exactly right that, that there are a lot of barriers, but we do have kind of a, a vision and it's a very ambitious one. And so we'll have to see how, if, if we can uh, live up to it over time. And it's a long-term project. It won't happen overnight, but we're kind of in the phase right now still of focusing on Mississippi and trying to cement our, our position uh, as the constitutional litigation center in the state. And so for now, we're, we, I mentioned earlier, we, we're gonna try to hire a staff attorney uh, to help with our caseload this year and will continue to kind of just grow within the state of Mississippi. But at some point in the next five years, we would like to start expanding to other states and kind of becoming a, a regional constitutional litigation center. And like you said, that could happen various ways. I mean, we would, we would have to, you know, hire attorneys who are licensed in those states. And it probably would be kind of a cell type operation where you would have an office in Alabama or an office in Georgia or wherever the case may be, then you, we would probably have to change our, our name at some point because right now we're the Mississippi Justice Institute. But yes, at some point, there's there's definitely room for growth here. There's room to do what we are doing, which as I mentioned earlier, there's not a whole lot of groups that do this. And there, there are some, and, and there's some very successful ones, but especially on the state level, when you're not talking about a national organization uh, with a national reach that might be based in Washington, D.C. or something like that, when you're down on the ground where a lot of these cases are down on the ground in a state and you're connected to that state so you get you see opportunities that that a national organization wouldn't necessarily be able to connect with because you have an office there and people there and and we talked just a minute ago about word of mouth and things like that going on local radio in that state and knowing those media outlets in that state and and just having a professional there who's got a network of his own and so with our model, it's, it's very down on the ground in a state, and that's what we're doing here in Mississippi, and we are having success with it, like you said, and so I, I think that there's room for us to replicate this in other states that don't already have it and to grow it, uh, to grow our organization to do that. And so uh, the vision is at some point for us to become kind of a regional constitutional litigation center that covers either several states in the Southeast or maybe the entire Southeast, and, and just to keep going from there. So two, two things. Uh, one is I keep thinking about the journey from being a young Marine to this. And I, I'm so inspired by you and your wife, I have to say. <laughs> I remember when we met in 2006, and I don't think you were completely, that was almost exactly a year a little yeah. over a year since your injury and I don't think you were completely healed yet although you were out yeah. of the hospital yeah. um, and 
but you had been in the hospital a long time and mm -hmm. you had married just before you deployed and yeah. Kelly was came from Mississippi to Bethesda to be with you the whole time yeah. and, and all of her she has a beautiful voice and she writes these social media posts I mean I, I hate to call them posts because her writing is so outstanding and mm -hmm. she's able to express sort of your lifestyle your life yeah journey in such a way that is very unique and influential and positive and uh, so I keep thinking like she does she connects so much back to your time in the ethics moral code that you um, probably went to the Marine Corps with but certainly were entrenched in the Marine Corps and how that's brought you to here yeah well, well, thank you for all of that. That's very nice of you to say. And we, we talked earlier about kind of entrenching some of the values there in the Marine Corps and solidifying those. And it, it, it certainly, I think my life path has been very different than most people's. And, and that includes up into the very recent past. And so for example of that is that when this job came open and it was something that I was very interested in, as I mentioned, and had always been interested in this area of law, but I was, I had been at a very large law firm for quite some time in a very, very hard practice group to earn your way in and was up for partner at the time in my law firm, which is, which is a big payoff that you've been working towards for seven, eight years when that happens and was just, was about to cross that threshold and, and was very, very much looking forward to it. But then this opportunity came up to, which would involve leaving a law firm that you, I loved. I loved the partners that I worked with there. The, even though it wasn't constitutional law, so to speak, I enjoyed the work and lo loved the firm. I was very invested in the firm and had put a lot of work into getting where I was in that firm. And, and so I had to walk away from all of that that I invested a lot in to go do something else that I was passionate about and that I felt like would make a difference in a way that was unique and that not everybody would necessarily have the interest or capability to, to do and that I felt uniquely positioned to do. And so I kind of felt a calling, so to speak, to, to do that. And so back to what you're saying about joining the Marine Corps and all that, I think that is, is maybe a, could be a defect of mine. I don't know if it's a, Hardly. A, a good thing or a bad thing, but, but yeah, I, when, 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 when I feel passionate about something and I feel like I can make a difference with it, a lot of times I'm willing to carve a different path than everyone around me. And I think that does harken back to the Marine Corps. And I mean, there were a lot of people who couldn't believe that I was leaving at the time I was leaving at that stage in my career that I was leaving. And so, but but they understood and they supported me and were happy for me. But, but they've also, since that time, as you mentioned at the top of this interview, the, the organization has really taken off and exploded so much that I think a lot of people who didn't quite understand at the time why I was leaving and why I would be leaving for that really have now come around and see, wow, this is really something neat and special. And we had no idea what this was when you were leaving for it. But now we really see what a difference you're making in the state and we're proud to see that that somebody one of our colleagues has been able to to leave and go make that difference so i love it i completely love it and that's and that's what the the series really is about is marines who have sort of kind of broken away from 
the expected path, even their own expected path to do something that they knew was the right thing to do. It involves yeah. risk. It involves yeah. choices, even when people like you have, you know, you have a family dependent upon you. Yeah. It was a roll of the dice with respect to that security for them. But I also think that you have an outstanding support system, even if it's just Kelly. Yeah. Because um, she's definitely your biggest cheerleader. Yeah, she is. <laughs> yeah. And she had to be. She had to be willing to roll the, those dice with me, and 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 it was a process. I mean, as you can imagine, a large law firm for a nonprofit job, and just trying to kind of make that work and kind of do the things you need to do to make it work. I mean, it, it took a while for us to, to work all of that out and it was definitely not an easy road at times. And so, like you said, it does, it is important to have a support system like that. When I, when I joined the Marine Corps, Kelly told me to do it and we were not married at the time, but we're, had been dating for five years and we're definitely planning to get married. And she knew that I wanted to do it and would always want to do it. And she told me to. And so not everybody would have, not every future wife or, or even husband would have done that and been that supportive. And so she was supportive of me then. She was supportive of me when I decided to, to walk away from a lot to go do something else that I was passionate about. And you're exactly right about that. If, without that kind of support system and, and somebody who's a cheerleader and is willing to kind of walk across Coals with you every now and then. You, you can't. It's, it's it's not as easy to, to go out and do those kind of things. That's right. And I I think about some of her posts when she talks about. She makes light of a lot of things, which is a, a sign of an outstanding writer. So she makes <laughs> a, a complicated thing funny. And um, so I remember so many of her posts saying. Doesn't everybody's husband talk about the Constitution over dinner? <laughs> Doesn't everybody's husband talk about the Constitution yeah. on a Saturday night in front yeah, of the barbecue? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it was clearer and clearer to me, just even through her social media posts, that this constitutionality, the constitutional law, was becoming really your, your work in life. And as you say, there's so much of it to be done. For heaven's sakes, here in Virginia, we've had... We had 200,000 people march on our state capitol uh, and other aspects of, of gun laws that were very unreasonable for a completely rural state. I mean, 90% yeah. of the geography of the state is considered rural. So, yeah. and, and these were peaceful protests, but Aaron, it was the only option the citizens of Virginia had because nobody could afford even collectively really to take on the government this way is it'd be a very expensive yeah. life. So it, it even locally, but in everyday news, if you were to have the budget for it, you would be a very busy man. Yeah, you know? we are. We're, and that's, I've told people the same thing is that when you're, and I feel like you, you mentioned Virginia, I feel like Mississippi is a state that is a target rich environment too. And so when you're, if you're doing constitutional litigation in the state of Mississippi, it's it's really just as much as you can handle because there's plenty of out there. And that's one thing that not everybody does understand is just what you said, because when I was making this transition, and especially because the organization, as I mentioned earlier, hadn't really been able to prove the concept yet, just kind of put the concept together. A lot of people had a hard time imagining it. I remember one of my friends even said, well, 
what if you're just sitting around over there waiting on somebody to screw up? And I just, you know, twiddling my thumbs waiting for it. And, you know, sure enough, it's been as soon as I got here, kind of one after the other. And and, and in reality, it's more, it, it's the other way, which is uh, people don't necessarily appreciate this either. But for every lawsuit we file, you know, constitutional challenge that we file, we've probably turned down 10 or more. And, and the reason for that is, yeah, both a, both a capacity issue and also just resources being able to litigate that many, but also, and it's one of the things that we're pushing against, like I said, in our, our precedent that we want to reshape in the courts, but the deck is really stacked against the citizen who wants to bring one of these kind of challenges and it's very, very difficult to prevail. And so if we're gonna do that for free and rely on money that our donors have given to us to advance that mission, then we need to succeed and we need to, to, to not waste that those resources that have been given to us. And so we, we have to pick and choose our battles and make sure that we take on a case that we feel very confident that we can litigate it all the way up to the appellate courts and we can secure a victory both for that client and for all Mississippians with that precedent that can now be applied to them in, in other ways. I mean, that's the thing about the way our, our court system works and case law is that it kind of works by analogy. So if Deepa prevails in her case and we strike down these absurd eyebrow threading regulations, it helps more than just Deepa and more than just eyebrow threaders in Mississippi. It sets a precedent that things like this, things that go this far beyond the pale, violate both the U.S. and the Mississippi Constitution, and the court has declared that. And you can take that to another you know, entrepreneur who has a similar situation and go to the government and say, you better stop doing this because we can sue and we can win. We've got a court precedent right here that's very similar to this. So. And I understand. I understand that precedents really are the bedrock of all progress this way. In yeah. the same in the same way as a you know a, a scholarly article based on a complex study is the is the bedrock for progress in, in medicine. So yeah. it I so what you're saying is essentially you have to choose them, but they have a ripple effect. They have an exponential they effect. They do. <laughs> and there's really two business models when you do this kind of work is you can be you can be a legal aid center or you can be a constitutional litigation center and we're the, the latter. And yes. so and that and that's hard because I have to tell a lot of people no or that a lot of people that I can't help them that I'd like to help. But we have to focus on because we've chosen to be a constitutional litigation center. We are trying to set, to set precedents and that will help more than just those, those that one individual. And in the aggregate, we help a lot more people by having that focus. Yes. But that means that not everybody that comes in the door that has a, a problem that we may even be able to advocate and we might we might be able you know successful in convincing a government agency to stand down, for example, and, and maybe some or maybe even making an exception or something like that. But it wouldn't necessarily result in a Fifth Circuit precedent coming out of this, we have to, to look at that and say, that's time that, that we can't spend doing that. Now, and we're, we're happy to help people find resources to do that. We get, I give people advice on how to do that all the time and arm people to be their own advocates to try to do things like that. Or, but even if it's a case that, that would need to be litigated, but we feel like I, I may personally believe in the case, but I know from from my constitutional law background that the odds of us actually prevailing on that claim are dicey 
we're not not very good. I mean, we, we have to have, we have to feel very strong about it if we're going to spend two to three years litigating this with money again that our donors have provided for us. And so, so that's just the nature of it. And it, it like I said, that's the it is a challenge. It is hard to to tell people that you can't necessarily help them, especially when you're one of the only groups in the state that that does this kind of work. And so people are looking to you kind of as their last resort sometimes. But you you have to also stay focused on the broader mission, which is if we get bogged down in this, if we get bogged down in being a legal aid clinic and not a constitutional law center, then we won't have the larger impact that 10 years from now will make a much bigger difference for everybody in Mississippi. That's right. I get it. I completely get it. And I value that. And I, I also value the focus on the mission and not allowing too much mission drift. Yeah. Because as you say, there are, there are other attorneys, there are other agencies out there perhaps yeah. who can support. I mean, I, I had a copyright infringement accusation from a yeah. French, from a French press organization about a Marine's photo I published in 2003. Wow. And they came after me and, yeah. and I was terrified, but I like uh, so many, I asked around and found that under the constitution and the federal law, the fair use allowed me to use that because I wasn't making any money on it. But the point was, it's a very scary thing when you have yeah. a big dog chasing you. Yeah. And and ultimately, it was a Marine attorney um, in Boston who said, Meriwether, you can fight this. Tell the yeah. whole story. Tell the um, lawyer for this uh, publisher the whole story. And I did. And I, and I, it resolved. It went away. Yeah. And so I really appreciate that you are a sounding board and can give some direction to yeah. any, but as far as time and resources you do have to be selective i value that yeah that's exactly right and that's and that's just what's happened what your story has played out in my office many times too and <laughs> and, and and not just the copyright i mean with somebody who's who's got it is scary like you said and, and a lot of times people are in my office who who are scared yes. of what's going on and so I, I definitely do try to do that. Like you said, even if I can't invest the full weight uh, and resources of our organization into fixing their problem for them, I do always, you know, send them away with my best advice on how I would deal with this if I were them. And you're exactly right that a lot of times people can, can be their own advocates and, and may not realize that. And if they even have just had the opportunity to have a conversation with somebody who knows how the system works and what the what they need to do, then they can walk away. And, and a lot of times help themselves with that problem so oh Aaron it has been so wonderful to catch up with yeah. you I can't <laughs> even great. believe it I mean it's been so long but golly you have used your time so well in this <laughs> well, 14 years it's uh I can't believe that that much time has gone by I mean I I've know. got the evidence for it I've got four kids running around my house to show for it but but it doesn't feel like that long at all. So it doesn't. It's funny about my relationships with Marines I've written about. It's like a long time can go between in persons, but when I reconnect, it it's as if no time has gone by. Yeah, I don't know I what that is about relationships between Marines and I was a sailor, of course, but yeah, nonetheless. Yeah, I agree with you. But listen. So it's been fun, but let's let's not wait so long to do the same. Yeah, for sure, for sure. You, you, we'll, we'll reconnect sometime, and I'm sure we'll have some other stories to talk about when we do. Yeah, that sounds great. All right, Aaron, it's been a pleasure. Right. Yeah, great, perfect.
All right, Aaron. And get right. my love, and I will. And we'll do it again soon. Okay. Good talking to you, Mary Weather. Likewise. Bye. Bye. So I hope you guys enjoyed getting to know Aaron. I feel certain you did. And listen, check out more innovative Marines in our podcast series, Core Stories Innovators. And hit subscribe. Thanks and Semper Fidelis. Bye. Core Stories, Ordinary Marines, Extraordinary Lives.